Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're continuing our series of sermons through the gospel according to Luke. And this morning we will begin with Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. Please give your attention to God's word. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Months ago, when I was looking ahead at the preaching schedule for this fall, I began to dread the day on which I would have to preach on this passage. The story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son is one of his best known and best loved parables. But I knew that the week of study and writing and preaching 
about this passage would stir up a lot of deep hurt for me. As most of you know, Suzanne and I have a son who is a prodigal. One of our five children, my second son, has rejected Christ, he's rejected the church, and he's rejected his family. I've spent the last 13 years praying every day and hoping for a change in his heart and a joyful reconciliation such as is pictured in this story between a father and a son. But there's no sign of it. I also know that there are many in our church family who have their own prodigal sons and daughters or prodigal sisters and brothers. And I don't enjoy stirring up that hurt for any of you either. And there certainly have been some dark and difficult moments in my study this week. But I've been reminded that the primary focus of this beloved parable, the primary focus is not on the rebellion of the prodigal son. The primary focus is on the free, unrestrained, and extravagant grace of God. The intended audience of this parable is not for those who are represented by the younger son. The primary audience of this parable is for those who are represented by the older brother. And such are many of us. Those who are proud, those who are self-righteous, those who are opposed to grace and resent grace. Many people, when they read this parable, they stop at verse 24, where the father throws the huge party. They want to end on this happy ever after ending, after the younger son comes home. But the real point of the story is in verses 35 through 42, the last verses. What this parable teaches is that you can reject the Father either by breaking the rules or by keeping them. Both sons rejected the Father. Remember how this chapter started. Back in chapters one or verses 1 and 2, it says that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. People who are coming from lifestyles of thievery and prostitution and adultery and tax collectors. Verse 2 says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And that's the complaint and that's the attitude that Jesus is addressing in this parable. That's in the background of all three of the parables that he tells here in chapter 15. Jesus tells three parables to illustrate that his mission is to seek and save the lost. The first parable is about the shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep and goes to search for the one. The second parable is about the woman who loses one of her most precious ten coins and she searches diligently until she finds the coin and celebrates and here we have a father who loses one of his sons 
and welcomes him back and celebrates, but then potentially loses his other son. What appears to be an epilogue to the story of the prodigal son is actually this story about the older brothers, actually the point that Jesus is driving home to the scribes and Pharisees. Let's begin by looking at how this parable gives us a picture of God's extravagant grace. Phil Riken summarizes the younger son's story in this way. He was sick of home, then he was sick, then he was homesick, and then he was home. So let's start with sick of home. This younger son was sick of home. He was sick of serving his father, sick of his father's rules, sick of his father's authority. He wanted to live his own life. He wanted to go his own way. He wanted to pursue the desires of his heart. He wanted to enjoy all the pleasures that the world had to offer. And so he goes to his father and he makes an audacious demand of him. He says to his father he wants his inheritance now. In a Jewish family, the older son, the older brother, would have received two-thirds of the father's inheritance when he died, and the younger son would have received one-third of the inheritance. But the younger says, no, I, I want it now. You, you understand, a father might, and actually there are provisions in the culture that time, in the Jewish culture, for the father actually to put his property in the names of his son so that they would legally own it. But when they would do that, the father retained the rights to the income from the property, and the sons were not allowed to sell it until the father died. And so when the son goes and demands that the father liquidate the assets of one-third of his inheritance so that he can have the money to go live his rebellious, independent life, he, in essence, is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But since you're not dead, I want what I'm going to get anyway. He rejected his father. He rejected, can you imagine the father? He rejected his father at the deepest level. I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now so I can go live my life the way I want to live it. The son rejects more than the father, though, doesn't he? He says he takes this money and he goes to a distant country. A far country. He not only rejects his father, he not only rejects his family, he not only rejects his culture, he rejects the covenant community. Remember, we're talking about Jewish, a Jewish family here. He's rejecting the covenant community of God's people to go to a far country, a distant country, a pagan country, where he could live the way he wants to live. And he squandered his property and reckless living, it says. That's where we get the term prodigal from. He was reckless with what the father gave him, this income, this money. He gave it to him, and, and, he, and he squandered it, spent it all on the pleasures of this world until all the money was gone, living for the moment. Just like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes went out to live for wine, women, and song, to fill his life with all the pleasures and, and treasures that this world has to offer. Ended up saying all is vanity, all is empty. But the younger brother 
at this stage where he's sick of home and in his rebellious stage, he wants to live by that motto, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No concern for the outcome of his behavior. But that's when the younger son becomes sick. And by sick, I mean soul sick. God intervenes in a harsh providence. And praise God that sometimes he intervenes in our lives with a harsh providence. What he did is he sent a severe famine. Not just a famine, but a severe famine into that distant land. And I don't know, I'm sure, you know, I'm guessing that this younger son had a plan for replenishing his resources after he spent it all on wine, women, and song. I'm sure he had a plan. But when the severe famine hit, all of that goes out the window. People are struggling to have food to eat. How in the world is he going to replenish his resources? He's left desperate and he's left homeless and hopeless. The only job he can find is a humiliating job of caring for a herd of pigs out in the field. Remember, this is a Jewish young man. Pigs were the lowest of the animals. They were unclean. They were despised among the Jews. And he's caring for them. And not only is he caring for them, he gets so hungry that the pig slop looks good to him and he envies the pig slop that the pigs are eating. He is now officially lower than the lowest animal in all creation. He had sold himself as a slave to sin, and as J.C. Ryle says, sin is a hard master. Do you know what the saddest statement of all in that lowest condition he got himself into? The saddest statement that it records here in the parable is at the end of verse 16 where it says, and no one gave him anything. No relationships. You see, he lived for wine, women, and song. He lived for wealth. He lived for pleasure. He lived for lust. He lived for experience. He lived for alcohol. He lived for sex. And when you form relationships based on that list of things, guess what? When all that's gone, you have no relationships. No one gave him anything. Next week, just as a teaser, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 16 where Jesus tells a parable that the bottom line is use your worldly wealth to make eternal friends through the gospel. But this is where he hit bottom. I talk about the pig trough moment. Every sinner has to hit that pig trough moment where you hit bottom. You have no hope in this world. And this is where his conversion begins. It says he came to himself. His spiritual eyes opened. He saw reality as God sees it. And his repentance began. He went from being sick of home to being soul sick to being homesick. And he began to long for home. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And understand that that's what repentance is. Repentance is not just turning away from sin. Repentance is turning from sin to God. Paul teaches the difference between worldly grief over sin. Everybody who gets themselves in the state that the 
prodigal son got himself into, everybody regrets the state. I mean, how could you not regret longing after pig slop for food? But there's a difference between worldly grief over that state of being and godly grief. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Here's the difference. He's talking about the repentance, the genuine repentance that he saw among the Christians in the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Everyone's going to grieve about the consequences of living as a prodigal son. But in your grief, without the grace of God, what you do is you blame others and you get feeling sorry for yourself and you go deeper and deeper into that dark place. But the younger son had godly grief because he wanted to go back home. He wanted to go back to the father. He says, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is crucial. We're looking for evidence that his grief over his sin was godly grief. And here's an evidence. He says, he's going to say to his father, I've sinned against God and also against you. Godly grief recognizes that your sin is an offense against your holy creator and your holy judge. Your sin is against God first and foremost and only secondarily against others. Yes, this prodigal son sinned against his father. He hurt his father deeply with his sin. But his sin was against God, not his father primarily. Remember David's confession of sin in Psalm 51. He's, remember the sins that he's confessing. He's confessing the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. Can't even fathom how much he hurt Bathsheba, how much he hurt Uriah, how much he hurt his country through his grievous sin. But listen to how he confesses that sin in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, God, against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's God's law that he broke. And God is the one with whom he needs to be reconciled first and foremost. Another evidence that his grief and repentance is genuine and godly is that he acknowledges that he's unworthy to be received back into his home and to his family. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's a pure plea for mercy. He knew that was his only hope, was mercy from the Father. But like all of us, though, when we're first converted, and this is true of every one of us when we were first converted to Christ, he and we vastly underestimate the extravagant grace of God. He, his best hope, the best hope for mercy from his father is that his father would hire him as a day laborer, as a hired man. There's a distinction in scripture between a hired man and a servant. 
He didn't have any hope of being brought into the household as a servant because he didn't deserve to be in the household. His best hope is that his father would have mercy and hire him out as a day laborer. It's like me hiring a plumber, hiring somebody to fix my car. That was his best hope. Because even the status of being a servant would be far too high because he was unworthy in the sight of the father. But how amazing is the grace of this father. He sees his pitiful, empty-handed son at a distance and his heart goes out to him. He's filled with compassion. This pig slop, hungering son, he's filled with compassion. And he runs to him. Understand that a father, an older man, an honored man, to run like that was humiliating in that culture. He runs to his son. And before his son can say anything, he hugs and kisses him. That's what you call unconditional acceptance in relation to a repentant heart. He hugs and kisses him. He's home. The father does hear the son's confession. He does say to the father, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. But then the father cuts him off before he can get to his, his uh, offer. Before he can try to make a deal to get some mercy from the father. The father cuts him off and he calls for the servants. And he tells them to bring his best robe and put it on the son. Tells him to bring the ring, which would be the family ring with the signet on it, representing the authority of a son. Put, a, put that ring on his finger. Put it back where it belongs. Put the shoes on his feet. He's not going to be a servant. He's not going to be a hired man. He's going to be a son. Put shoes on his feet. And go get the fattened calf and let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Fattened calf was only killed on the most special of occasions. It was saved for the most special of occasions. At this point in the story, Jesus wants every tax collector, every sinner, every thief, every prostitute, every adulterer, and every Pharisee and scribe to get the message, to know that this is the kind of response that you can expect from your heavenly father if you come back with that kind of grief over your sin and a repentant heart that turns from your sin towards him. Immediately restored to the full rights as son. All you have to do is acknowledge that you have sinned against God and against the others that you've harmed with your sin. All you have to do is recognize that you have no hope except for the mercy of God. All you have to do is acknowledge you are totally unworthy in the sight of a holy God, and your only hope is his mercy and grace. And come to him in faith and his promises through Christ. But the story's not over. The main point of Jesus' parable is in the old brother, older brother's reaction to the return and reconciliation and restoration of the younger son. And that's where we see in this story a picture of grace rejected. 
You know, this family is like so many families, not every family, but so many families. Isn't it true that the oldest son is the rule keeper and the youngest son is the rule breaker? And the older son resents the fact that the rule-breaking younger son doesn't get treated the same, you know, that he's not treated the same way that the older brother was treated. I say that as the youngest son in a large family. <laughs> I felt years of resentment from my older siblings for the grace that was shown to me as a younger, youngest son. Well, the older brother, he's out working in the field, and he comes in, and he hears the party going on, and he asks the servant, what's going on? And the servant fills him in that his long-lost younger brother has come home, and his father has received him warmly and restored him to the status of son, and now we're celebrating. How does he react? He's angry. He's angry and he refuses to come in. Matter of fact, in the original Greek language, the word angry there is intensive. It's, it's an explosive anger. He's infuriated at what has happened. If he was upset by the father warmly welcoming this prodigal son back home, you can only imagine how furious he would be that he was immediately restored to his full status as a son. And so what does the father do? The father in grace goes out. The son, the older brother who refuses to come into the celebration, he goes out to meet that older son in his anger. And that's where you see the ugliness of that older brother's son, uh, heart. He begins by saying, look. That's not how a son in first century Jew, Jew, Jewish culture would address a father says, look, very disrespectful. For these many years I have served you. A literal translation of that verb would be slaved. Many years I have slaved for you. He didn't serve his father out of love and thankfulness. He served his father out of what he was going to get out of it. He was earning his place. And the father did not give him what he deserved in his mind. What a contrast to the younger brother. He says, I never disobeyed your command. Now, I have no doubt that this older brother was a rule keeper. And he was diligent to keep the rules. I have no doubt about that. I have full doubt that he never sinned. But in his understanding of sin... He had never disobeyed. Reminds me of the rich young ruler when Jesus quoted the Ten Commandments to him. He said, oh yeah, all those I've kept since I was young. That's the same thing this older brother is saying. I've been a rule keeper. He refers to the younger brother as this son of yours. Did you catch that? This son of yours. You know what that indicates? He disowned him a long time ago. He wrote off his younger brother a long time ago. Not only to him was, not only was this younger brother unworthy of being accepted back into the family, he was unredeemable. What's the bottom line of his complaint? Father, you're being unfair. You're being unjust. 
I have served you faithfully. I've kept all your rules. I've slaved away in your household. How is it fair that this guy goes out and sows his wild oats and gets to come home and be restored to complete sonship at the end? To have all the same things that I have. How is that fair? He sees himself as deserving of the father's wealth and favor and inherently superior to his younger brother. Isn't that a vivid picture of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is addressing with this parable? Arrogant, self-righteous, and unthankful. But notice the father's gracious response. He says, my favor and wealth are always available to both of my sons. The rule breaker and the self-righteous rule keeper, his wealth and his favor is available to both so long as they come with love and thankfulness for his grace, acknowledging they're unworthy. It was the prodigal son, the younger son, who was spiritually dead and spiritually lost, who became spiritually alive and spiritually found, and the celebration was about him. There's an, in, there's an implied offer to this self-righteous older brother. If you will come with the same attitude, you will have all of this as well. But the story ends on a cliffhanger, doesn't it? The response of the older brother is not recorded. That's the kind of thing that Jesus does when he wants the target of the parable to search their soul. He wants the Pharisees and the scribes to see the radical contrast between the responses of the father and the response of the older brother to the return of the prodigal son. The father watches for him. His heart fills with love and grace towards him when he sees him as just a speck on the horizon. And he runs to him to embrace him, to kiss him, to welcome him home. And he forgives him. And he fully reconciles with him and he restores him to the full rights of sonship. That's the father's reaction. But the elder brother refuses to accept him and he curses his father for the grace that is shown towards him. Jesus wants the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes to see themselves in the older brother, to be humbled, to confess their sins, to repent and return to the father. Because you can reject the father both by breaking his rules and by keeping his rules. Both can be acts of rejection of the father, just as both these sons rejected their father. Even though the older brother was physically close to the father, he was actually much farther away than the son who went to a distant country. And he needed to realize that. Where is Jesus in this story? Where's the cross? Where's the blood of atonement? Tim Keller has probably written the definitive modern book about the prodigal son. It's actually called The Prodigal God because the word prodigal means reckless and what he says in the book is that God is reckless with his grace. 
But in that book, he says that Jesus is actually, in a sense, missing from the story because Jesus is the perfect older brother. Jesus is the perfect older brother, the one who was humble and obedient in every way, thought, word, and deed, who never sinned, always did the Father's will out of love for the Father. And the one who truly loves the father and the younger brother. And Jesus is the older brother who went to seek the younger brother when he went astray. He's the shepherd that goes after the sheep that goes astray. He's the older brother who goes after the prodigal younger brother when the prodigal younger brother goes to a distant land. Why did the older brother stay home and write off his brother? A good older brother would go find that lost brother and try to bring him back. Jesus is that older brother. He paid the price for his younger brother's sins, for your sins, my sins. He paid the price with his blood shed on the cross, paid in full. You see, that's the basis of the grace Grace is at the center of this extravagant grace of the Father is the center of the story. And the basis of that grace is the blood of the true, perfect elder brother, Jesus Christ. That's why the Father could accept this prodigal son back into the home and restore him immediately to the full rights of sonship. Because of what the true elder brother did. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about it. Talks about Jesus becoming our elder brother. He says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the basis of the grace of the Father. I want to just give a closing word to fellow parents of prodigals. Got a lot of experience being one of those. I don't have a lot of advice to give you. It's the deepest pain you're ever going to feel. All I can say to you, it's very simple. All I can say to you, it's just don't, go, don't grow weary in praying for your prodigal son or daughter. Don't grow weary in praying for them. Pray that God will bring your prodigal son or daughter or your sister or brother. Pray that he will bring them to that pig trough moment, whatever it takes, to realize they have no hope in this world and their only hope is the mercy of the Father. The Lord has to open their eyes. The Lord has to change their hearts. The Lord has to give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. God has to do that. I know that if you're a parent, there's nothing you want more. You would give up anything in this life, your own life, to have your son or daughter come home, come back to God and to you to have that relationship reconciled and restored. You give anything. But 
if you've been a prodigal parent for very long, you know, or a prodigal brother or sister even, you know that if you try to make it happen, you're probably going to push them farther away. That's the way it works in a family. But your hope is in the Lord. He, we, he can do all things in Christ. There's no guarantee. I wish there was. I've had people try to tell me that. They said, you know, he'll come back. He'll come back. Just be patient. He'll come back. I don't know that. There's no guarantee. Scripture doesn't give. I wish it did, but it doesn't. But I do know that God will bless your prayers. God will use your prayers. Your, your prayers are crucial to the process of bringing him back if he's going to bring him back. Keep praying. Keep watching the horizon. And keep your life filled with the grace of God. Don't ever let yourself stop being amazed by the extravagant grace of God. Because it's being filled with that awareness of the extravagant grace of God that's going to enable you to run to your prodigal son or daughter or brother or sister and hug them and kiss them and embrace them and reconcile with them. Prayer is how you stay in tune with that grace. Let's pray. Father, I know this has been a passage of scripture that's very painful for me to dig into and I'm, I'm sure that there are others here this morning that it's been painful. Father, pour out your grace upon us. Give us patience. Give us hope. Deepen our trust in you. Lord, please save our prodigals. Bring them home. Bring them to you. Bring them to us. Give them Christ, we pray. In his name we pray, amen.